Father, we do ask for your teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that we would really be able to receive what you have for each one of us today, be changed by it, to be more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, there's this guy. He was a pastor, and he was driving through the country, and his car broke down, so he walked to the nearest, you know, farmer, farmer's house and said, you know, my car broke down. Do you have a horse that I can use to go get some help? And he said, well, uh, I have one horse. He's a holy horse. So you need to know how he works. But you say, praise the Lord to make him go. And you say, amen, to make him stop. So the pastor's got it. He gets, gets on the horse and he takes off. And he's, and he's making his way just fine until he comes across this one bridge and there's a snake right before the bridge and it spooks the horse and the horse just takes off. And as the horse is taken off, they're going faster and faster, but they're headed for a cliff. And the pastor's trying to remember how to stop the horse. And he's like, whoa, whoa, stop, stop. And then he thinks, and he just starts to pray. Lord, I just confess all my sins to you. He's repenting. And, he, and he's thinking, Lord, I'm ready to meet you now. Amen. And so he says, amen. The horse stops right at the edge of the cliff. And he's so grateful. That he says, praise the Lord. You know, it's wise to remember what you're told. We're doing this series on God's wisdom for navigating 2021 and beyond. And today we're going to talk about wisdom and humility. First passage I want you to notice from Proverbs is Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2. It says, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Humility is key to growing in wisdom. In fact, Humility is so important, according to the book of Proverbs. I want you to notice this next, path, next verse, what it says. Proverbs 22, verse 4, says, The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. I mean, so much is riding on whether or not we will embrace humility. It determines whether or not we're going to become wise, men and women. It also determines whether or not we're going to be able to experience a certain amount of riches and honor and true life during our time here on earth and forever. So a lot is riding on humility. So we need to understand two things. We need to understand what it is and how do we walk in it. What is humility and how do I walk in it? Sometimes defining a word is really best done by seeing an example. And we want to look at an example of humility in action. And I want to start with the second best example of humility that I know of, and that is the life of John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus says this of John the Baptist. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So the question ought to be in our minds, well, what made John the Baptist so great? Why did Jesus say this about him? Well, let me read a passage, uh, actually two passages out of John chapter 1, 
and tell us a lot about John the Baptist. As I read the passage, see if you can notice what it is about him that made Jesus say that he was the greatest that had been born up to that point. John chapter 1, verse 6 says, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about, about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to testify about the light. Now we jump down to verse 19 of John 1. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, and he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. They said to him, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent by the Pharisees, and they asked him and said, Why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them saying, I baptize in water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. So John the Baptist is asked a series of questions. I, I could imagine how frustrated a journalist would have been trying to interview John that day. You know, he's asked all kinds of questions on who are you? Who are you? And all he would answer is who he was not. He confessed and did not deny I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Then they basically said, then who are you? Who are you? Now, the earlier passage that we read tells us plainly he was not the light, but he came to point to the light. John knew who he wasn't. He knew it wasn't about him. He knew it was about Jesus. I was driving down South Cooper some years ago, and I'm following this old beat-up car, and this kind of smoke's coming out of it. It's all dented up. And the bumper sticker that was barely hanging on, the bumper sticker said, it's all about me. So I decided to speed up to take a look at this guy that it's all about. And as I sped up, you know, he's kind of all disheveled and unshaven. His hat's on backwards, and he's in all kinds of disarray. And I started thinking as I was driving next to him, looking at him, thinking, okay, there are billions and billions of galaxies. And then there's this one little galaxy called the Milky Way galaxy, and it has billions of stars. And then there's this one inferior star and it's got a real little solar system. And in that solar system, there's a, there's a small planet called Earth. And on that planet, there's countries. And, and, and one of the countries, the United States of America. In the United States of America, there is a state called Texas. And in Texas, there is a city called Arlington. In Arlington, there is a street called South Cooper. And there is the one who is all about right there, South Cooper. <laughs> Jesus 
I mean, sorry, John knew who he wasn't. John knew it wasn't all about him. John knew he was not the light. He knew that he was only here to point to the light. He knew that clearly. There are so, uh, Christian, there's so many Christian ministers and ministries that can fall into this mentality that they're the light. That they've got it going on like nobody's got it going on. I mean, we are the ones. We got it. It's all about us. You know, some years ago, I, I, was, I was leading the pastor's group here in Arlington at the time, and we signed a covenant together, and I asked all the guys if they'd be willing to sign this covenant of four things, and I'll just tell you the number one thing on the covenant. We had 99 Christian leaders in Arlington sign it that year. The number one thing was a commitment to make Jesus famous in our city. And what we talked about is we said, we don't need any more famous pastors. We don't need any more famous evangelists. We don't need any more famous churches. We need to make Jesus famous because it's all about him. John the Baptist understood that. He understood it wasn't about him. He was not the light. He was simply pointing to the light. Here's the truth. Truth is, I'm not the light. You're not the light. Grace Community Church not, is not the light. Gateway Church isn't the light. Village Church isn't the light. Preston Baptist Church isn't the light. Jesus is the light. And all we are are witnesses pointing to him. Because it is all about him. Well, John was asked the question, okay, then who are you? It's interesting how he answers that question. They finally just go, they're irritated. Who are you then? He said, I am a voice crying in the wilderness. I mean, he doesn't even give them his name. He doesn't even give them his name. He said, I'm just a voice. It doesn't matter who I am. It doesn't matter because it's not about me. It's all about him. He takes the focus totally off himself. And they're like, well, then why are you baptizing? And he says, well, I baptize with water. His implication was kind of big deal. It's a preparatory act. It's a religious rite. It's getting people ready for the main thing. And that is turning to Jesus when he gets on the scene. And then he goes on to say, I'm not even worthy to get down on my hands and knees and unlatch his sandals. You know, a disciple in the first century had to do just about everything for a teacher, but the one thing he was not required to do was to get down and undo his shoes. He was not required to do that. That was too low to go in the first century. And John takes that opportunity to say, I'm not even worthy to do that with this one. John the Baptist was great because of his humility. He was great because he thought less of himself. See, he didn't think, it wasn't, it wasn't like he was thinking, he wasn't thinking of himself, I'm like thinking less of himself. He thought of himself less. In fact, John the Baptist didn't think of himself at all. And that really is, that example does give us a tremendous definition, I think, of humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not putting yourself down. It's thinking of yourself less. It's, you're not even thinking of yourself. In fact, John the Baptist wasn't thinking of himself at all. God loves humility and God hates pride. The book of Proverbs is clear about that. Look at this. Proverbs 6, 16 and 17 says, There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. They turn his stomach. Verse 17, haughty eyes, number one. Number one on the list of things God hates. Do you ever want to know? 
Number one on the list, he hates pride. He hates it. He hates pride. He loves humility. Humility is getting your eyes off yourself and onto others. Humility really is just kind of self-forgetfulness. And it's something you can choose to do. We all can choose to do it. We can choose to not be self-centered, to forget about ourselves, to focus on others, to point others to the one who is all about. It's all about Jesus. So John the Baptist, I said he's the second best example of humility that I know of, you can read about in the Bible. So now let's talk about the first best example. The first best example of humility, of course, is Jesus. Most of us are familiar with some of how Jesus humbled himself. He actually, in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read a passage in just a moment, starting in verse 5 through verse 8, he actually takes, Jesus takes six demotions voluntarily. Let's read through this and see if you can notice some of these demotions he takes voluntarily in his self-forgetfulness. Philippians 2.5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to hold on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this passage tells us that Jesus humbled himself. He left the splendors of heaven and took a series of voluntary demotions. First of all, we understand he starts in heaven. According to John 17, 5, Jesus actually was sharing the glory of heaven with his father in heaven. John 17, 5, Jesus says this, now, father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was, before there was a creation. Jesus starts in heaven. So in all glory and majesty and splendor beyond our wildest imagination, that's where this story starts. Before he takes a demotion, that is where he begins. And then he steps out of heaven to take the first demotion. It's a huge step down. It's a gigantic demotion. He becomes a man. Uh, just try to grasp that for a moment. He is a, becoming a human being, born a baby. I mean, he doesn't just do a fly-by planet Earth. He actually really becomes one of them, one of us. He puts on flesh and blood. He doesn't just draw near humans. He becomes one of them. Now, we all know what it's like to be human. We know what it's like to feel hungry. We know what it's like to be exhausted. We know what it's like to be in a crowded shopping mall. We know what it's like to be gestured in traffic. But Jesus had never experienced any of that kind of treatment before. So he becomes a human, and he goes through all the stuff of humanity. And for the first time, he experiences things like weakness and hunger, and exhaustion, 
and rejection and scorn and ridicule and humiliation. And all starts where it starts. He's born in a barn. I mean, think about this. The king of kings isn't born in a palace. He isn't born in the best hospital. He's born into poverty. He's born into a poor family. He's born in a stable, laid in a manger. His first bed is a cattle feed trough. The Bible says that heaven again is this place of unimaginable beauty. Think about this. Unimaginable splendor and majesty and beauty. The sights and sounds that he was surrounded by. And now he wakes up for the first time as a baby. And the first time, the first things he sees is the inside of some type of barn. The first thing he smells is probably the smell of urine and manure. The first sounds he hears are probably the sounds of some type of animals. In heaven, he's surrounded by angels singing, worthy is the lamb and holy, holy, holy. And now he has different sounds. In heaven, all he had known at one time before creation was the perfect, perfect community in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in perfection, in love. And now he's laying in a cattle trough all alone, all alone. And he is experiencing weakness. The one who had unlimited power is now experiencing weakness. And he's lying powerless. He has to hope his mother will change his diaper. He's completely powerless. And then he doesn't just grow up to be just any person. He, he takes another demotion. He becomes a servant. He didn't become a rich human. He didn't become a noble, powerful leader. He became a servant. He embraces servanthood in his life and in his ministry. And then he takes another demotion. He submits to death. I mean, think about this. The one who himself is life and light allows darkness to put out the light, allows death to overcome life, and he dies. It wasn't just any death. It was the most humiliating death possible at that time on planet Earth. He submits to death on a cross, the most humiliating, torturous death on a cross. After being scorned and ridiculed and beaten, he's then stripped naked, and he's hung up there for everyone to see. Think about this. The glorious one, the majestic one, the holy one is beaten savagely, stripped naked, ridiculed, tortured, and hung on a cross. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says this For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, oh, how rich, yet for your sake he became poor, oh, how poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. He was rich, became poor. What for? Is there any nobility in poverty? The answer is no. There's nobility in sacrifice. He was rich. He became poor that we, so that we who are poor might become rich. He did it with a purpose. He, became, he did this because our sin and our predicament demanded that he, he do that. There's nothing else that would have worked 
except for him to come and die in our place and save us from our predicament, the eternal death, and he did it. He left heaven. He took demotion after demotion after demotion, and then through sacrifice made a way for us to be able to be forgiven and have his righteousness imputed to us that we might have our sins forgiven and know God now and forever. So through his humiliation, he brought about our eventual glorification. And that is the ultimate example of humility. Once again, we see it was all about self-forgetfulness. His focus was not on himself at all. It was on us. Through every step. He wasn't thinking less of himself. He was thinking less of himself. In fact, he wasn't thinking of himself at all. But what was it that enabled him to do that? What, was enab- what enabled him to put, to, to put others before himself? Well, just days after Jesus comes in on that young donkey, which is Jerusalem Palm Sunday, just days after that, he celebrates his last supper with the disciples. He celebrates Passover with them. And during that meeting, we learned something about how he was able to humble himself. And we learned something about how we can do the same. Let's read the account. And as I read it, see if you can notice what he knew. Jesus knew something that enabled him to humble himself. What did he know that enabled him to do that? Let's just read it. John 13, starting in verse 3. Jesus, this is again, this is at the Lord's Supper. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then after he washes their feet, he teaches them a principle. John 13, verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am so. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you, ought, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I gave you an example that, you should also, that also you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So he chooses to be humble. He chooses to give preference to others. He chooses to live this life of serving others. And he's saying, if you make that same choice, if you follow this example, you will be blessed if you do it. But again, I want to go back to what enabled him to do that. He knew something that enabled him to do this choice, to make the choice of humbling himself. And by the way, if we don't know what he knew, we're not going to do what he did. What did he know? There's three things that he knew that we can know. He knew who he was. He knew where he was going. He'd come forth from God. He was going back to God. He knew where he was going. And thirdly, he knew what was waiting for him when he got there. So he's able to humble himself. I think the same can be true for us. My whole consciousness of how I go about living life needs to be governed by these three things. Here they are. Number one, my realization of who I am. 
Number two, my consciousness of where I'm going. And number three, my knowledge of what's waiting for me when I get there. All right, let's break that down just for a few minutes. My realization of who I am. Do you know who you are in Christ? Not who you were. You know, not who you were. I mean, how you grew up or what your background is or any of that. Who you are now. I was talking to a young man not long ago, and he kept talking to me about that he was an orphan. I said, okay, you, we were, all, we're all, in a sense, we're orphans, but we're adopted now in the family of God. That's who you are now. That's, I, I don't know, I want to talk about who you were. Who are you? You, you, are a, you are loved by God. You know, in Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul doesn't tell Ephesian believers to do anything or us to do anything. He just tells them, remember who you are, remember who you are, remember who you are, because we've got to know who we are to determine what we do, how we live. And, I, and I've summarized this passage before for you guys. There's 10 things I think that we can get out of Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, and I'll just tell you what they are about our identity. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are adopted. You are included. You are a saint. You have purpose. You have power and authority. You have promise. You have security. You have a great future. Never forget who you are. I got to know who I am because that liberates me, frees me to humble myself because I know who I am. I don't have to prove who I am. I don't have to prove it to anybody. Do you know who you are in Christ? You're a new creature. Old things are passed away. Do you know who you are? That realization enables me to humble myself now. Number two, my knowledge or my consciousness of where I'm going. Do you know you're going to heaven? That Jesus has already gone ahead of you to prepare a place for you, and he knows what you like, and he knows how to build. So we keep our minds set on things above, not things below. And the more I think about that, the more I'm freed up to live for others now because I'm going to glory one day. I don't have to get glory now. We're going to be in glory forever. That frees us up to humble ourselves and live a life of self-forgiveness. One more. My knowledge of what's waiting for me when I get there. What's waiting for me when I get there. It's all about the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to face Christ one day, and we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Commendation, but there's going to be rewards given out. There's going to be crowns placed on heads. There's going to be future assignments. You were faithful to these five things I entrusted to you. You're over five cities. And so think about what's waiting for you when you get there. That's why you don't have to grab everything now. Think about what's waiting for you when you get there. So those three things are key. We really have to, my realization of who I am, my consciousness of where I'm going, and my knowledge of what's waiting for me when I get there enables me to live a life of self-forgetfulness now. All of us can. Because it's not about us anyway, right? It's all about him. So that's really what frees us up to live, live a life of humility. And living a life of humility enables us to live a life of wisdom and to live a life that's worthy of riches and honor and life. Let's stand and close in prayer. And I just want to Pray through these things we're talking about. Let me invite you to just close your eyes, if you would, for a moment. Just close your eyes and just put your hands out, palms up, and like you receive it from God. Postures help us really align our faith. Father, we really pray today that by your grace, Lord, by the power of your spirit, you'd enable us to realize who we are.
that we would just this, this day, this week, we wouldn't be able to get away from the reality of who we are in Christ, our new identity, that we don't have to prove ourselves to anybody. But also pray, Lord, a real sense of a consciousness of where we are going. We're here so, so, so temporarily and so briefly, and then we're going to glory. So we don't have to get glory now. Lord, also we pray that for the knowledge, really, of what is waiting for us when we get there, Lord, this realization that we live for that moment of commendation and reward and future assignment because you can trust us because of how we've lived for you now. We realize it wasn't about us. It was all about you. We live like that. So we pray that for each one of us, Lord. We ask this week that we would really have this, this, these truths deep, deeply embedded into our heart and soul and spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus.